It is so good to see you, church. Um, for the first time, many of you without a mask. Um, I didn't really expect that we might we'd get here until June, so I am so delighted uh, to be here and uh, to see a lot of faces. Um, yesterday was the Global 6K for Team World Vision, raising uh, money for clean water in Africa. And... Um, 19,800 people around the globe participated in the Global 6K, and then, of course, many others participated virtually, and we don't know those numbers yet. And 35 uh, were from the bridge yesterday at Carson Park, and uh, we also had many virtual uh, people. Um, and then uh, money was raised for 43,800 people for clean water for life. So uh, thank you all. Bridge kids, you are dismissed. Thank you for being here today. The rest of us are going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and we're talking about the upside-down life because kingdom values are way different than our cultural values of today. Reader's Digest tells about a 67-year-old man named Bill. Throughout his lifetime, Bill had donated over 100 pints of blood to the Red Cross. Many people were helped by Bill's kindness and his generosity, and many people's lives were saved because of Bill's sacrifice. When Bill was asked about his good deeds uh, and how they might be viewed in heaven, how God might see this, he said, well, when the final whistle blows and St. Peter asks, what did you do? He said, I'm just going to say, well, I gave a hundred pints of blood. And then he laughed and said, that ought to do it. Now, Bill is very altruistic, and he is a generous man. But if he's counting on blood to get him to heaven, he's counting on the wrong blood. It's not about what he must do to earn his way to heaven, but it's about what has been done for him. Jesus Christ is the one who did the work for Bill's salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for Bill's sin, and it was his shed blood that redeems anyone. Um, and, and God offers eternal salvation to Bill as a gift, and it is to be received by faith. It cannot be earned by good behavior. It cannot be earned by donating blood or any other good thing that we might want to do. And by the way, Bill is never going to stand before St. Peter because everyone must stand before Jesus at judgment. Whether you're a follower of Christ or you are not a follower of Christ, every person will stand before Jesus for a reckoning. And what we see here is that one of the problems that humans have always dealt with is the danger of making their own rules for God, for God's requirements, uh, for, for uh, 
suggesting or telling God how he should do it. This was a first century problem, and it is still a problem today. Because um, if you study world religion and the isms around the world, they all have this same kind of performance attitude, that the way that whatever their outcome is going to be, it's about how well they perform. The same is true about uh, cults, those uh, religious groups that sort of somehow try to connect in some way with Christianity, um, their way is about performance and not about what God has done for them. So we come to uh, Philippians chapter 3, and we, we begin with the, uh, the problem the problem being a human-centered life. And, and, and the Apostle Paul in his day is going to talk about a human-centered religion. And I want to read um, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 to start us off this morning. And Paul begins, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Then he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have such, have reasons for such confidence if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And so there's uh, Paul's resume, and we're going to be talking about that. The problem, a human... Uh, centered life. And uh, let me just uh, talk about verse 1 here for a minute because it's really not the problem, okay? Uh, when, when Paul writes, further my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That's not the problem. Paul is asking the Philippians to find their joy in Christ. Um, how are they going to deal with the difficult things in, in their time, in their lives, the, the persecution that they faced and that will be coming? coming. How, are they going to be, how will they rise above their circumstances? And they need to find joy in Christ. They need to focus on Him and the things that He has already done for them and the things that He is doing for them right now and the things that He will do and the things that He said He will do to find their joy there. So, in verses 1 through 3, Paul is going to deal with the subject of false teaching, and he gives a warning to watch out for false teaching. Now, there's a few terms in here that are kind of foreign to, the, to our culture today, and I just want to give a little background to what's happening here uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3 especially. So the issue uh, that the Apostle Paul is facing that he wants to warn the Philippians about is from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So we want to go back there, and uh, here's what 
uh, happens in Acts 15. So this is a few years before Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Certain people came down from Judea. That's from the land of Israel. They were Jewish people professing to be also followers of Christ. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Antioch is in Syria. This is a Gentile location. There was a Gentile church, Gentile being non-Jewish. We all here probably are Gentiles. Um, came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching believe, the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what Paul's concerned about. There were people who were teaching and adding things to the gospel. Um, the believers in Syria had come to faith in Christ and they had trusted Christ and they had been born again and their sins were forgiven. Now a group is coming in, a group that Paul would say are false teachers, and they're adding something, something that, this, that God never intended. They're saying... You have to be circumcised. You have to believe in Jesus and you have to be circumcised. That's a big problem. A um, couple things about circumcision. This is always a fun conversation. It is in the New Testament. It's, uh, circumcision in the Old Testament was an important thing. For on the eighth day for, for male children, I don't know how people were going to believe and be circumcised if they were female. But for a male, on the eighth day for a male child, his parents were to remove a piece of skin, of foreskin. I'm not going to go into any more details than that. And that was to be a sign of the Old Testament covenant. Um, it was a demonstration of their faith. It was a demonstration of their commitment to the Old Testament covenant. It was a sign that they belonged to the covenant of Moses. It did not save them. It was really an act of faith on the part of their parents. It was important. And now a group is coming along and saying, this is what you have to do. You have to believe and you have to do this. You have to be circumcised to be saved. Now, verse 2, uh, I mean, Acts 15, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the, the apostles and elders about this question. This is like the first major doctrinal issue that the church faces. What is the gospel? And what about these people who are saying you have to believe and be circumcised? So they, they call a huge church council to discuss this in Acts 15. And Paul and Barnabas are there uh, to defend the gospel. Okay, back to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. That is not politically correct. Paul didn't know that. Uh, dogs in the first century were scavengers. They were not pets. You know, there were, it is not like today in our culture. Um, dogs were something that just ate garbage and kind of roamed the streets and um, wasn't like a fun animal in, in, in the, from their perspective. Now, the interesting thing is that a lot of people in the Jewish religion 
uh, because they thought that they were better than other people, better than Gentiles because they were Jewish, developed this pride, uh, not honoring to God, and they sometimes called Gentiles dogs. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He's turning the tables on the false teachers who are demanding circumcision, and he's calling them the name that they call people who don't know uh, the true and living God. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil doers. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh for requiring this thing that God does not require. And it's just mutilation of the flesh uh, to, to expect this for salvation. Um, in verse 3, Paul writes, For it is we, meaning the Philippians, meaning Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, and it applies to us today, we who are the circumcision. Now that feels like an odd one to describe us or to describe the church today. But listen, listen how Paul uses it here. It is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by His Spirit. Oh, I understand that. We're, we're to serve God by the Holy Spirit. We're to worship God through the Holy Spirit. Who, we who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And, and, and Paul's using this word flesh here, and he's not just talking about physical flesh. He's talking about humanity without Christ. He's talking about humanity that focuses on human effort, especially in being accepted by God. And it's about human uh, weakness apart from Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is in Christ. We boast in Christ and in his work and his accomplishment and his forgiveness. We put no confidence in the flesh. Um, if the Judaizers had understood the Old Testament, and, you know, they were supposed to be, they think they've really got this down. They're supposed to understand the Old Testament. They would have understand, uh, they would have understood Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. And uh, Moses writes, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. That's something different. God will circumcise hearts. How's he going to do that? And the hearts of your descendants so that you may love uh, may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. It's a, it's a work of God. Circumcision ultimately is a work of God. And this is a, a spiritual act of God. And, when, and even in the Old Testament, when, when, when people were genuine believers in the true and living God, when they, when they came to God by faith, not by works, their heart was circumcised as if there was a, a chunk of spiritual skin that had to be removed. It had to be ripped off so that human hearts could have access to God. And that's the very same concept in the New Testament of being born again. Uh, Romans chapter 
2, verses 28 and 29, we, we see this. Uh, Paul writes, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, uh, the physical a- activity, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Next slide. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, not by the law. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And Paul is saying, we are the true circumcision. We are the people of God and whose hearts have been changed by God. He has removed the barrier that keeps us from having a relationship with him. Now, we already have a little bit of an idea of what the Apostle Paul thinks of false teachers. He treats them firmly. There's another passage in uh, the New Testament, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And so I'm building, this is kind of a long build up to the problem here, but it's kind of important to understand because it's a little bit complicated for what we, our culture, okay? We have to understand sort of their traditions, their practices, and some of the meanings. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And so Paul is responding to that same group of Judaizers. They're from Judea. Judea is in the southern part of Israel. It's where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. Uh, It's kind of the center of the universe for the Jewish world. And so the Judaizers have come into the Galatian churches earlier. And here's what Paul writes. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who calls you to live in the grace of Christ. The gospel is by grace. It's God's favor. And are turning to a different gospel. So they had, they had already placed their faith in Christ. They had been born again. They were genuine believers, but they're They're starting to falter. They're hearing new ideas, and they're beginning to change their viewpoint on the gospel. And Paul has some strong words. And you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And now here's where he comes in strong. Verse 8, But even if we, the apostles, Paul and Timothy... Peter, James, and John, any of those, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. That's kind of strong, I think. Verse 9, as we've already said, so I now say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. The gospel is not about believing and doing something else. It's not about believing and being baptized. It's not about believing and then doing good works and hoping God accepts you. It's about Jesus dying on the cross. It's the only way. It's the only gospel. He paid our ransom in full. Nothing can be added. Nothing more can be done. There's nothing we can do. Very simply, the gospel is Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day. 
And we have the responsibility to respond to that message by faith. Michael Horton writes, the gospel is not good instructions. It is not a good idea. It's not good advice. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's an announcement, and we need to make it a public announcement, and we need to live it out so that we can share it and, and talk about our own personal faith stories. We can only share what we know. We can only share what God has done for us. We can't share what God has done for everybody else. And announce the good news, what Jesus has done for us. We come now to verses 4 through 6, and uh, we are to remember it's not about us. Verse 3 was about we, that is, believers who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Paul writes, though I myself, when you think about it, and you want to think about people who have done great things, and people who have it all together, he said, it's me. You look at my life. And so he's going to brag. He, he's going to brag, and he's, he's sort of little showmanship back to the false teachers. And, um, and he's going to show how irrational that is. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, the human effort, he says, I got far more. And, and then he begins in, in verse 5, he says, me, I was, I was circumcised the eighth day. I already got this down. My parents, they were godly parents, and they followed the scripture, and hey, I've been circumcised already. Eighth day. Good start. Of the people of Israel. Paul is an Israelite by blood. He was from uh, Tarsus in Syria, but he, he, he came from a Jewish family, and he was raised in a Jewish home with the scriptures, with Jewish tradition. He was of pure blood, of the people of Israel. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. He came from the family line of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes, one of, one of Jacob's sons named Benjamin. And all the tribes have some kind of history, and there's usually some good history and some bad history. Benjamin is the same. But the good history, the good reputation of Benjamin is the first king of Israel came from uh, the tribe of Benjamin. Actually, Paul's former name was Saul, named after the first king of Israel, Saul. Um, Benjamin was uh, one of the tribes that remained faithful to Judah when the northern uh, kingdom and the southern kingdom split for a few hundred years. And the southern kingdom, it struggled, but it was a little more faithful than the northern kingdom. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He spoke the Hebrew language. Now, Paul was in Syria, a Gentile nation, and a lot of uh, Jewish people who lived in Gentile countries spoke Greek. Paul did not, he could speak Greek, but Paul spoke Hebrew, and Paul spoke Aramaic. 
He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was a rock star when it, when it came uh, to being uh, all in for his religion. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee, the strictest uh, sect of the Jewish clergy, a, a Jewish professional um, minister. And they had a high view of God. They had a conservative perspective on Scripture, a high view of God, a high view of Scripture. One of the problems is they added a whole lot of extra rules on top of what God had said. Then verse 6, he says, As for zeal, as for my passion, I persecuted the church. Paul took uh, his role so seriously. When, he, when this new group, these, this Christian thing began to surface, he saw that as heresy. He saw that they were worshiping three gods, and that's not right. And so Paul took it on himself to go from town to town to identify Christians uh, before the Jewish community and to have them arrested if possible or have them killed if possible, having, having them put to death. Paul took this seriously. He was a persecutor of the church. And for righteousness based on the law, Paul says, I was faultless. I was above reproach. Now, now what do you say? Is he saying he was perfect? Nope. He's saying, well, when I failed, I did what the law required. I, I made the, the, the adjustments that I needed to. I, I sought out whatever I needed to do to be uh, back into fellowship. He, he was a person who lived out what he had been taught, even though there were some inaccurate things in what he'd been taught like adding to the rules that God has already given. And so Paul is bragging, and he has great uh, credentials. If, he, if anyone could be accepted by God for their performance, Paul deserved it. Um, if, it if anybody could be accepted by good works, it would be Paul. Um, but that's not how God does it, is it? We don't get to make the rules. And Paul learned himself on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 when he, when he encountered Jesus for the very first time. And he was just overwhelmed and placed his faith in Christ. And it began to change who he was, change all that he understood about who God was and who Jesus was and what he began to learn what Jesus intended for him. We come now to, uh, so the problem is a human-centered life, and, and that's not acceptable to God. And the solution now is a Christ-centered life, and we see this in verses 7 through 11. Uh, in verses 7 through 9, it's about letting Christ transform our lives. Jesus is in the transformation business. And he wants to transform you and me. He doesn't want us to stay the same. Whatever we are today, he wants us to keep changing and keep growing and to keep becoming more like him. Paul writes in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looks back over his life 
And he weighed his life on the scales of justice. He, he weighed his life on the scales of God's justice. And he measured his own profit and losses. And when he considered his losses, it's just like he made two columns. And when he considered his losses, his Jewish heritage, though it was good, as far as being commend, as far as commending him to God, it's a loss. His Jewish pedigree, all of that identification with uh, the, the, the nation of Israel and the history of Israel, his education, trained by one of the finest teachers in the history of Israel, Gamaliel, his whole professional clear, uh, career as a Pharisee, he says, all of this was lost. It has no value and I no longer value those things. He, he measures the prophet side. He said, I've gained Christ. And that totally, totally outweighs everything else in life. It's like... Uh, the Apostle Paul realizes when he, when he thinks about his former life, when he thinks about all the things that he used to be able to brag about, even though he probably didn't do it publicly, um, he understands, maybe for the first time, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Look what Isaiah said. So Isaiah writes seven to 800 years before uh, Paul here, and Isaiah writes, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Everything that we might do to claim to be good works, to be accepted by God, in God's eyes, are like filthy rags. He has no, no desire for them. He has no need of them. They are totally unacceptable. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. When I, when I evaluate my life, when I look back, I consider everything a loss when I compare it with the worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing Christ. This is about a personal experience. This is not head knowledge. This is not intellectual assent. This is more than just having the right facts about Jesus. This is about personal experience. Paul knowing Christ. Knowing Jesus' forgiveness knowing uh, Jesus' presence and his comfort and his direction and his leadership. He says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now, Paul literally lost everything that was valuable in his former life. 
He had this social standing in the Jewish community as a Pharisee, but not just a Pharisee who made it that far in his social community, but he was at the top of his game. He was like the best, and it's gone. And he will not be recognized in that community any longer as this great leader, this great hero, this great example. He says, For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul says, It's refuge. It goes in the manure pile. Sometimes it's tra- that word is translated as dung. And he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from from doing good, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul was once a rising star among religious leaders, and when he looks back and he compares that, it has no value. It's garbage. He'd rather have Christ. Now think about this. Remember where he is? He is a prisoner in Rome, and he's nailed, uh, he, he is chained to a Roman soldier. And he, and he would rather be that and know Christ than have high status walking around in Jerusalem. He clearly understands that no righteousness comes through human effort. No righteousness comes through the flesh. It can only come through Jesus Christ when someone believes in Christ for salvation. Think about this. When you believed in Christ, whenever that was, whether you were four years old or 40 years old, whenever that was, God took the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he put it into your account. So it was no longer about you. It was about him. So when God sees you now, your identity is that you are in Christ and you have the righteousness of Christ. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It is by grace. And so... When the Apostle Paul came to faith, he had these values from his culture, and he strived for excellence to be, um, to achieve in his culture. And when he encountered Christ, he realized that was a mistake. He realized there are different values. There are values of the kingdom. There are values of Jesus Christ, and they became his values. But the question for us is, how is Jesus shaping your values today? Has he changed your values? Is he still changing your values? Verses 10 and 11, this is the last part of our passage, let Christ shape your goals. Not only did the Apostle Paul's values change, His goals changed because of his encounter with Jesus. His goal was no longer to stand out as a religious leader. Verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. 
I want to know him by my experience. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to know God's power in his life on a daily basis. Now, he believes that one day he, his body is going to be raised from the grave and that he'll definitely experience that power in that way. But he wants to experience God's power right now. He wants to experience that power to be able to handle sin and to deal with sin and overcome sin. He wanted to be able to overcome an addiction. He wanted to be able uh, to do the things that please Jesus, to know the power. And participation in his sufferings. This is so anti-American Christianity. Paul wanted to identify with Jesus so much. He understood that not only was there sacrifice, but there, there was suffering that comes from following Christ. And that's just what happens when you're following Christ. Now, we live in a country where we haven't experienced very much. We can follow Christ, and we, we've had a whole lot of safety. It, and I'm glad to live in America. But certainly you know that not all Christians around the world experience the safety that you and I have. And I don't know why we have so much safety here. One of our problems is, is we pursue the safety over following Christ. And Paul wants to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, he's not talking about the sufferings of Christ on the cross where Jesus atoned for our sins, where he paid for our sin penalty. He's not talking about that. That's very unique. That's something only Jesus could do, and it was done once. But he's just talking about following Christ However, God wants, and if it means he's going to be a prisoner in Rome. And by the way, in about two years, Paul will be beheaded in the Roman persecution around 64 AD. Um, Paul understood his identity, and he even wanted to pursue it, becoming like him in his death total obedience undoing the Father's will to the very point of death. Like Jesus, who was totally obedient to do his Father's will. Paul wants to be like that. Um, Paul was motivated to go all the way. He was all in. Verse 11, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead... It almost sounds like Paul wasn't sure about his, whether he would be raised from the dead or whether Jesus was going to do this. No, that's not what, what's happening here. Paul never, never doubted that uh, he would experience the resurrection from the dead. That one day Jesus would return. One day Jesus would come and, and he would call out all of those who have believed in Christ and those in the graves would come out and be raised and resurrected. Those who were living would be raised as well. We sometimes call this the rapture. Paul never doubted that that was going to happen. 
But Paul was focused, and he was longing for this day, this day that he would meet Jesus in the air, a day of full redemption. The Apostle Paul understood his identification with Christ, and he sought to live that out one day at a time. And one of those key passages that that he focused on was Galatians chapter 2 and and verse 20, And, and here's what he says. He says, I've been crucified with Christ identifying with the death of Christ. Um, Because of what God has done for him, he wants to be dead to sin and alive to God. Um, Some of that is a decision, and it's impossible apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. I don't want to live the Christian life, Paul says, But Christ lives in me. I want Christ to live the Christian life for me. The life I now live in the body. Right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how Paul lived. He wanted to be dead to sin. No, he wasn't perfect. Never became perfect in in this life. But he wanted to consciously be alive to Christ as much as possible. He wanted Christ to shine forth in his life. And that's the way he's going to focus, one day at a time. That's kind of what we would describe as the upside-down life, not according to world values or cultural values, but according to kingdom values. A couple things as I close uh, for reflection. The Apostle Paul began this section, chapter 3, verse 1, by telling the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord. What do you do? When do you rejoice in the Lord? When do you focus on joy in the Lord? Not on your circumstances. It doesn't mean you don't deal with your circumstances, understand your circumstances, that you count the cost of your circumstances. But at what point do you focus on who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he's going to do for you and what he's doing right now and find joy in the Lord? Secondly, coming to faith in Christ changes one's value system. How is Jesus changing your values? Stop and think about that. He's probably changed some of your values in the past. Are you allowing him to continue to change your values as it's needed? Are you becoming more like Jesus in your value system or more like an American Christian? Last one, thirdly, coming to faith in Christ changes your goals. How has Jesus changed your goals? What, when you think about your goals in the future, how does Jesus fit into those goals? Are your goals focused on pleasing Him or are your goals focused on a little more happiness and a little more comfort? Let's stand together and pray.
Father in heaven, I thank you um, for Philippians chapter 3 and uh, for reminders uh, to us today about what the gospel is. And sometimes we find ourselves knowing that we understand the gospel, but sometimes we change from living by faith and recognizing our lives come from grace. We began to focus on our efforts to please God apart from relying on the Holy Spirit to work in us. And we do a lot of things in our own strength, and we get tired, and sometimes we burn out. May we recognize that the Christian life is not only coming to faith in Christ and accepting the work that God has done for us, but allowing God to work in us day in and day out, to working through us with his strength and his power. Help us, God, as we think of values and goals to ask what you want, what you want to accomplish in our lives. Help us to be willing to submit to your leadership. Enable us to follow one day at a time. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.